You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Back in early May, more than 11,000 members of the Writers Guild of America went on strike. There were picket lines outside of studios. There were people holding placards that were maybe a bit more clever than you might see at your typical labor dispute. There were some statements and demonstrations of solidarity from A-list actors. But there didn't seem to be much urgency on the part of studios and streamers to resolve the dispute. There was even some speculation that they were happy about the opportunity to save a bit of money on salaries and force some concessions. But last week, things escalated considerably. We have to acknowledge you sitting here earlier on the red carpet. Unfortunately, they're off to break their picket signs for what we believe to be an imminent strike by Sally. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing. 26,000 bucks a year is what you have to make to get your health insurance. And there are a lot of people who residual payments are what carry them across that threshold. And if those residual payments dry up, so does their health care. And that's absolutely unacceptable. On July 14th, 160,000 performers represented by the Screen Actors Guild decided to walk off the job and join the writers on the picket line. It's the first time since the 1960s that both unions have gone on strike simultaneously. And their main grievances boil down to similar things, namely lost revenues in the age of streaming that have made it difficult to earn a living wage as a creative in Hollywood, and also the emergence of AI, which has imperiled their job security. Thus far, neither the unions or the studios have indicated a willingness to give in, and at this point, there's just no telling how long the work stoppage might continue. So how will the sag after strike impact production at Hollywood's biggest studios? How will it impact Canada's TV and film industry? And how much is really at stake here? I'm Joe Fish, sitting in for Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Barry Hertz is the deputy arts editor and film editor at The Globe and Mail. Barry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have you, and it it does feel a little bit like deja vu, because the last time we had you on the show two months ago, we were discussing the Writers Guild strike. Um, And at that point, I think there was a bunch of, you know, statements of solidarity from actors, but no direct action themselves. And now, uh, lo and behold... We've got some 160,000 people walking off the job and joining the writers on the picket line. Is this just pure coincidence? Like, is this a coordinated action from the actors or, or is this just just happenstance? No, I mean, this is just a, this is a matter of time. The contracts were set to expire when they expired. They just happened to be bumping into each other like this. Um, so the season of discontent is just a curious matter of timing. Nothing was really reactionary from one thing or another. Um, the collective bargaining agreement was up and it needed to be renegotiated. Right. So this isn't a case of 
the writers being on strike and then saying to the actors, you know, this would have a little bit more weight if you guys came and joined us on the picket line. Oh, God, no. I mean, <laughs> if it, it's not a show of solidarity in that fashion. Um, it just happens to be that uh, matter of timing. And they do share a lot of similar concerns. Right. Yeah. So let's get to those concerns. You know, like most strikes, I'm, I'm guessing this started with a negotiation between the union and uh, other stakeholders, namely the studios here. Can you just, you know, briefly for me, if you can kind of outline what happened between those two sides uh, in the months leading up to the strike? Well, we can kind of uh, foreshadow it in what happened with those two sides leading in the months up to the writer's strike, um, because the issues are very similar. So on one hand, you have a body representing the major Hollywood studios and streamers. And on the other hand, you have the talent. So earlier, it was dealing with the Writers Guild of America, so television and film writers. And the central issues were that there have been massive erasure of residuals upon which um, writers used to really be able to support themselves between projects and make a very healthy upper middle class living. And those have been wiped out by the kind of tectonic shifts that we've seen in the uh, advent of streaming. Right. So series that you know, residuals used to flow in because a television show would be aired by a network and then it would be sold into syndication and it would be sold to other international markets worldwide. Um, and every time it aired, somebody was making money and some of that money would trickle down to the participants, including the writers. Mm-hmm. Now, in the streaming era, you have kind of like a walled garden right? Where a Netflix show stays on Netflix, doesn't go anywhere else, isn't licensed out to another uh, market. And the viewership for that doesn't really matter, or it's certainly not shared with the creative team. So nobody knows how successful things are, really. Anyways, what that all means is your residuals are dried up into nothing. And we've had a couple, you know, viral tweets of writers showing their residual paychecks from, uh, you know, in, in the current age where they add up to like 36 cents a quarter. Now we used to be talking about thousands of dollars a quarter, maybe more. So there's that issue. The other hot button issue, and this is also a thing that is uh, more of perhaps affecting the Actors Guild, is the rise of artificial intelligence. And now this is an issue that has been really just kind of come out a little bit out of nowhere since this past November, I would say, and has come to completely dominate the discourse and uh, negotiations about this. When can studios use AI? When can they kind of hold on to the likeness of an actor and have that digitally, you know, multiplied across various projects for infinity? Um, These are the issues that are concerning a lot of the creative community. And, you know, they should be because what happens in the creative community will eventually be reflected in the rest of the labor market. Right. And I was seeing, uh, you know, one of the main talking points I've seen kind of all over the internet was talk of, you know, background actors and how this rise of AI will affect them and their ability to earn a livelihood through film. Do you mind just outlining for us what their sort of main gripe was with what the studio was putting forward during the negotiations? Yeah, one of the stipulations that the studio had been putting forward and that had kind of made its way into a a meme of sorts uh, online is that 
as a background actor, you can, you know, appear one time in a thing and then the studio or the producer reserves the right to uh, hold on to the digital likeness of yourself in perpetuity and reuse it um, without obtaining your consent for future productions. So essentially you're signing your life and your career away for a one-time job. Now, it didn't say they were going to do that. It just said they had the potential and opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, the advances in AI are, are, are steady, but they're not perfect. So this wouldn't necessarily happen tomorrow, but in several months, several years time, who knows? So it was, uh, you know, quite a provision that the uh, producer's side was asking for. And, you know, rightly, in my opinion, the actors uh, decried that and walked away. So what is the first week of this strike kind of, you know, looked like what, what can and can't SAG-AFTRA members do while the action remains in place? Well, not a whole lot other than get out on the picket line and uh, craft some funny signs and add a little, maybe a star and sex appeal to the, (laughs) to the writers. They are pretty much barred from any work that would you know, take place on a set, their voice work, choreography, background acting, and, uh, you know, more critically for this time of year, especially they're barred from any promotional work. Right. You cannot attend a press junket. You cannot give interviews. You cannot do social media. You cannot go to film festivals, anything that would be in the service of promoting work that is been struck. Now, there are certain provisions for that uh, that SAG after has uh, allowed. Say, if you are working on a truly independent production, mm-hmm. which means it's financed um, outside of the studio system, either by private equity or other kind of sources, then you're allowed to continue doing that. And uh, you can apply for waivers um, from the union to continue your work on that, whether that's production or promotion. And last count, I believe there were upward of 50 projects that have applied for this waiver that want to keep on shooting, want their actors want to keep on promoting and, and et cetera, et cetera. So we'll have these exceptions come up here and there. And that's going to pose a bit of a perception and optics problem because people are going to think, wait, I thought you guys were on strike. Are you scabbing? What's going on? So there's, there's going to have to be some kind of communication from the union about, you know, how this is actually totally legit and genuine. And I did see, you know, some lines from one of the union uh, SAG's uh, chief negotiators saying, this is something that is good. Actors still should work on these projects because these independent producers are capitulating or agreeing to our you know, asks Mm -hmm. our requests and showing that it can be done. Whereas the position of the major studios are showing, you know, a stonewalling of, of, of sorts. So if we see that, you know, there are people who are willing to play ball, then it show it, you know, it just that much more underlines the studios intransigence on the issue. Last time you were on to talk about the writer's strike You sort of intimated that the studios, there might be some sort of fringe benefit to it for them because it might have given them the opportunity to save some money on salaries, maybe clear some projects from the docket that they weren't that enthused about to begin with. I think your prognosis back when we spoke in May was that it might not be until, you know, late summer, early fall until we really started to see studios and streaming services start to sweat over this. Does this 
change that calculus now that SAG has joined the picket lines alongside the writers? For some players more than others, I think a streamer with a deep catalog of titles that they can pull in both domestic and internationally, I'm speaking of Netflix, they're still in a relatively safe category. They have a very deep reservoir of, uh, of back catalog things they can pull and promote and, and put and repeat and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The hurt is going to be felt pretty much immediately on the traditional network broadcast side and the traditional film studio side. Already there are conversations about pulling movies from fall release schedules because they're not going to necessarily have the talent to get out there and promote those movies. So are you going to take a risk and hope that public awareness of a movie can be done by marketing of trailers and and directorial talent alone rather than red carpet and actor interviews and and all that kind of social media stuff? Right. It's a very, very big issue. And if I were a movie theater, I would be steaming mad um, at studios because just after emerging from a years long shutdown, we're entering another crisis that is totally studio made. This is something that could be quashed if they were just willing to negotiate and afford themselves some wiggle room. But now you're jeopardizing the, you know, two massive, potentially massive quarters. I want to talk a little bit about the kind of optics of this. It's kind of, to me, reminiscent or feels a bit reminiscent of when, you know, music piracy kind of became a a big thing in the early 2000s. And then people were kind of almost like lampooning these musical artists saying like, you know, oh, boohoo, P. Diddy can't buy a vacation home in the Bahamas anymore and, you know, whatever, all this stuff. And and now that these big name celebrities, you know, I'm thinking like Matt Damon, Susan Sarandon, these rich people have kind of attached their names to this. I, I think someone could be forgiven at first glance for feeling that same way. Like, why should I care about you know, these rich people not making quite as much money as before. Is that totally wrongheaded here? It's not a completely wrongheaded, no, because the, the, the way that the landscape works is it's very unique to any other labor market really that exists because you have a union which sets rates, but you also have, you know, top performing members of that union who negotiate their own salaries with unions, uh, sorry, with studios uh, via managers and agents and lawyers. So you have this tiered system, you know, no doubt the Tom Cruises and Jennifer Lawrence's of the world are, are doing fine, but the bulk of the membership of SAG-AFTRA, which is, I believe, 160,000 people plus are Workaday actors, performers, character actors, television supporting people, background actors, people just kind of trying to make a living in the film and television industries who do not get their name on the marquee and do not get even the chance to walk a red carpet. And this is affecting them. So the kind of 1% of the people we associate when we think of actors are not hurting, no, but they are fighting for their fellow performers and everybody else. And, you know, some, including, uh, you know, the likes of Meryl Streep um, and uh, Jennifer Lawrence, to reiterate, are, you know, signing letters and putting their name out there and walking the picket line and saying, you know, this is a fight that affects us all. I want to talk a little bit about how this is going to, I mean, right now, to this point, we've talked about the United States pretty much exclusively. You know, as most listeners are probably aware of, we have a massive film industry 
within Canada that's sort of inextricably linked to Hollywood. How's this going to hurt Canadian film? And have we seen any of the impacts manifest yet? I mean, yeah, we've seen them uh, impact immediately. Um, a lot of American shows and films that is projects that are funded by the Hollywood studios and streamers come up to Canada to produce their material and in doing so employ Canadian crews, Canadian creatives like cinematographers, set designers, costumers, et cetera, et cetera. So all those productions immediately shut down. So a lot of Canadian crews are out of work. Now, what that means also is there a Canadian film that's in production here that happens to employ a SAG after member? You know, a lot of Canadian films, as you know, kind of often, you know, use some American talent to, to draw eyeballs and to, to goose sales. So. Are those people going to be able to work? Are those films and, and television shows uh, immediately struck down? And then finally, I mean, we have, you know, a pretty big film festival here. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called the Toronto International <laughs> Film Festival every September. Right. Uh, right. You know, and that is an uh, annual festival that is built on the draw of celebrity, Hollywood celebrity in particular. Are those people going to be able to come up and walk the red carpets? Are those films that are in the lineup going to stay in the lineup? Or is a studio going to decide as this strike may or may not prolong itself that those films need to be held onto a little bit longer? Um, I do not envy uh, the decision-making and negotiating and migraines that are going in, on inside of TIFF right now, nor on the, uh, you know, in the household of any Canadian crew member who is to, you know, deciding how to get their next uh, paycheck going with a struck production. So last time we spoke, uh, you did mention something about how this could lead to some, at least maybe marginal benefit for the Canadian film industry as eventually the, the can of productions maybe dries up for some of these streamers and they look elsewhere for uh, North American content and maybe they start to look at Canadian IP to fill those gaps. Yeah, I know it's only been a few months since we spoke, but has that come to pass? Have we seen more interest in, on the part of streamers in purchasing Canadian IP? We've seen a little bit, not necessarily on the streamers part, but with uh, broadcast networks in the US. The CW, for instance, has bought actually like a number of Canadian shows, CTV's uh, Sullivan's Crossing, also CTV Bell Media's uh, Children Ruin Everything, I believe has also been sold down there. So there have been some activity here, but nothing to revolutionize our domestic industry. We're not suddenly being inundated with, uh, you know, feature film offers to get Paul Gross uh, down there to star in the next Marvel movie. Yeah. Although that would be, I'd watch that. I'd watch that. <laughs> that would be something. Alpha Flight, he can do it. But uh, yeah, so it, the effects have been there. I would, I would say they've been marginal. Okay, so at this point, it's fair to say that it's, it's hurting much more than it's helping. It's certainly hurting, which is what a strike is supposed to do. A strike is supposed to hurt and spread the pain and make everybody feel the pain in order to come to a resolution. And the pain is real. And let's hope it is real enough that um, the sides can get together and get this deal done. And in terms of that pain, let's talk about the uh, consumers of this content for a second. Is this going to hasten the effect that the consumer might see as we log on to Netflix or 
whatever we're using? Could we, could we now see it sooner that these actors have walked off? We could. We could certainly. As we say, like everything has been shut down. The, you know, the third season of The White Lotus was set to shoot in Thailand um, and that has been put on hold. You know, major films, Deadpool 3, Gladiator 2, you know, they were in the midst of shooting. They're on hold. So, yeah, we will feel this. Um, not, again, immediately, but the longer this goes on, the more it will be felt further down the line. So even, you know, if this resolves itself by the end of August, which unfortunately is looking like a very much best case scenario right now, the, the ripple effects will be tremendous. And the fall, winter, and spring calendar uh, for 2024 are going to look a little bereft, a little tumbleweedy. Uh, if a little you will. Canadian, maybe. A, a little Canadian, a little Canadian. So, you know, my advice to consumers, to audiences at the moment is slow down. <laughs> Don't feel you have to binge everything. Ration it out. Ration that stuff out. You know, we're in the peak TV, peak, peak, peak TV thing. And the complaints has been, there's so much to watch. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to watch. Well, just, you know, Good news. You got time. You know, pace yourselves. So I, I've got maybe a stupid hypothetical question for you here, but I, I wanted to ask it anyway. At this point, if a studio like Netflix or Disney wanted to sort of pull an end around on everybody, actors and writers alike, and just produce a purely AI acted, AI generated piece of content, could they do that? Like, are, are, we, are we there yet? I don't think we're quite there yet. We might be there for like a trailer or like a proof of concept or something that's kind of a fun, fun and big, heavy quotation marks, throwaway kind of gag. Um, but I don't think audiences, I don't think the creative, I don't, I don't think the technology is there yet. And I definitely do not think audiences would embrace that. I think there'd be a massive revolt. It, it, uh, even if it were possible for you know Disney to, in four months, release a completely AI Avengers, which I'm pretty sure is impossible, I cannot imagine the vitriol that that would be greeted with uh, by fans. It's just not a solution. Okay, so let's end this off by just, um, it seems to me just looking at the conflict that We've got, on the one hand, uh, these studios that seem to have endlessly deep pockets. I don't know. At first glance, it seems to me that they might be able to outlast these actors. Is that a fair summary? Like, is there any indication of who might blink first? Well, studios have deep pockets, but they also have angry investors. You know, these are publicly traded entities and quarterly results will show when you don't put product out into the market, you don't earn revenue. So if you are starting to pull your releases because the stars can't promote them and you're not pulling anything money, any money in, then, you know, those reservoirs will run dry. Studios are in the business of producing content. Um, you know, certain ones are certainly backed by entities such as uh, the Apples and the Amazons of the world where the movie business is a very, is a tertiary concern, if anything. But a place like Paramount, a place like Disney, a place like Universal, I mean, these places need to put things out. And if they don't, they're going to be just as much dire straits as a writer who's figuring out how to buy groceries. Thank you so much for breaking this all down for us. Here's hoping that 
this all gets resolved and we do get our White Lotus 3. And uh, hey, maybe we do see Paul Gross in a Marvel movie to anyone from the studios listening. Yeah, they're free free to take that idea. You can credit me. Uh, I'll, I'll take <laughs> your residuals. for it up here for sure. Barry, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Barry Hertz, Deputy Arts Editor and Film Editor for The Globe and Mail. That was the big story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you have any feelings about this episode, positive or negative, we welcome all feedback from listeners. You can reach out to us at the Big Story FPN on Twitter. You can send us an email. The address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can leave a voicemail for us by calling 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you can get it on your smart speaker by asking it to play the Big Story podcast. The Big Story is produced by me alongside Robin Simon. Our showrunner is Stephanie Phillips. Our research assistant is Samandara. And sound design this week was provided by Christy Chan. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Fish, sitting in for Jordan Heath-Rawlings, who will be back on Monday.